Hey everyone, I'm Avi Klein. I'm Sam Graham Felson. And you're listening to Hey Man, the Advice Podcast for Men. Each week we answer one of your questions and hopefully get a few of our own questions answered as well. And this week, we're really pleased to be joined by Adam Frankel. Adam's a former Obama speechwriter and the author of the memoir, The Survivors, a story of war, inheritance, and healing. Adam writes uh, really beautifully and movingly about his experience growing up in the third generation after the Holocaust and the impact that the Holocaust had on his family and his mother growing up as a descendant of, of Holocaust survivors. It's a really touching book about identity and about family secrets. And I really enjoyed this conversation. I was just really touched by Adam's honesty, his vulnerability. And if there's a theme to his book and this conversation, at least one of them is the ways in which the truth can set you free. Enjoy. Adam, thank you for um, coming to talk about your uh, new um, memoir, The Survivors. Um, and um, this is a book that uh, kept me up at night. I read it late into the night, and I, I don't normally do that because I have two little kids, and <laughs> yeah. reading late into the night <laughs> is not a good Sleep idea. Sleep is precious. You just yes. need to... Yeah. Um, but I was... Um, I was totally riveted by the book and um thank you uh i mean a it's it's an amazing story it's you know very um well told and beautifully written but it's also just something on on a personal level that um i connected to i'm i guess not as uh on the same level you are but i i guess i would consider myself like a 3g person Mm. which is third generation holocaust descendant yeah um my grandparents uh my father's side uh were among the last people to escape germany Mm. after kristallnacht um uh, but my grandfather's store was destroyed in kristallnacht his sister was uh killed by the nazis a lot of his family members were Mm. killed but he was able to get out Mm. i think on one of those extraordinary Mm. talent visas he had a relative in the u.s who helped hook that up but uh but certainly for me like uh, a big um, thing that I've struggled with uh, in my life has been uh, anxiety. And um, I think a lot of it is related to um, some of the trickle down effects of uh, what it was like for my father to grow up with two uh, Holocaust refugees. Again, not survivors. They weren't in camps like your grandfather uh, was. Um, how do you see that trickling memory. down to you? How do you make sense of that? Well, I, I mean, I'll just give a quick example because yeah. I want this to yeah, be yeah. about Adam. <laughs> yeah, but um, but uh, for for my grandfather, the fact that he escaped and like his sister was killed and obviously a lot of his friends and family were killed too just gave him a tremendous sense of survivor's guilt. So he um, just never spent money on himself. Or, you know, uh, and, and he, he was a professor, he made a good salary, but I mean, he ended up saving lots and lots of money just on a professor's salary because he never spent money on himself. I remember when um, he, he, you know, um, he was very uh, prominent in, in his field of physics and he won this major award and uh, we went out to dinner to celebrate and he literally cried when he saw that the bill was like over a hundred dollars mm. for like a day, you know, it wasn't even that fancy of a place. Yeah. And, uh, and I was like mad at him. I think I was 18 or 19 at the time. And I was like, you got to enjoy this man. Like, you know, um, and he's like, you don't understand. I can't, I can't enjoy this. Yeah. And actually, you know, and on the, and on the flip side, uh, any sadness or pain is sort of pushed to the side because how can you feel sad or pain or pained about something? given what your parents and family went through. Totally. You know, you shouldn't be allowed to feel that way. So that had to be kind of suppressed. Yeah. So you're kind of, from both sides of it, really um, you experience the... that. I mean, one of the people that I uh, interviewed in the book is a woman named Yael Daniele, who sort of a pioneer of intergenerational trauma research, wrote, edited the sort of handbook on this stuff uh, decades ago and was one of the first people to look at uh, and help treat the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. And, and to paraphrase her, I mean, part of the way she talks about it is it's not about 
um, you know, whether people experience the impacts of this trauma, it's who and how intensely. Mm-hmm. And she has sort of a classification system for thinking about that. But yeah, no, I mean, this stuff is real. Uh, and how could it not be, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, you know, how could it, the traumas that are so profound not have these major uh, effects on us generations later? It sort of seems like, I mean, between, I guess I'm thinking like World War One and soldiers coming back from that, but then certainly the Holocaust are like, seem like the two historical events where as a society and a culture, we were waking up to yeah what trauma is. Right, yeah. PTSD yeah. Was, yeah. used to be called shell shock after right. World shell War shock, I, right? combat fatigue. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you know, World War II, the most violent cataclysm in human history. Hmm. Uh, and as I ta- start talking to people about this book, everyone has World War II, everyone has a story of how World War II trauma has right. Im- impacted their family, both whether, you know, wholly apart from Holocaust trauma, uh, um, you know, which is sort of in a way gave rise to a lot of the research around intergenerational trauma. Um, but, but wholly apart from the Holocaust experience, just people who fought in, survived, and, and even who were back home and had lost loved ones and, and dealt with all of that. And just the way the trauma has, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, reverberated, I think is very powerful and, and everyone has that experience. One of the things I was really struck by in your book was um, uh, your your wife called you an emotional tundra, which <laughs> which my wife has has didn't give me that exact nickname, but has levied similar charges against me at times. But I, I think you're right that um, that there that that uh, you know without generalizing about all three G kids, but like I I grew up certainly suspect of emotion. I think um, it, it wasn't. Uh, but what the, the the prized value that I received from my parents, which which I am very grateful for, was I think the 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 value you got, which is resilience. You know, um, which is like, uh, you know, we survived. You think uh, of, is that resilience or stoicism? And well, in it might be it might yeah. be stoicism, and that's worth parsing. But I think um, uh, so that that but but it was certainly like a sense of like. We don't give up. We're fighters. We're, yeah, we, you can get through this. We, right. we can get through this. But yeah, but right. but I do agree with you that stoicism it had a stoical edge to it because because the 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 tricky part of it was if you get sad, not only that might be indulgent, but it might be dangerous. Uh, it might maybe. be dangerous because imagine if your relatives had wasted time right. bemoaning their fate. They might have died in the right. Holocaust instead weakness. of surviving. Don't show right. weakness. No signs right. of weakness. They're right. tolerated, permitted. Yeah. It's, it's To your point, it's dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the bulk of the book is um, actually less about um, your your grandparents and more about your mother. Mm. Um, and um, and that was also something that, you know, growing up with um, a mother who struggled with depression and, and ment- mental illness... Um, also contributed to your kind of feeling like um, this sense of instability, this sense of unpredictability, yeah. and yeah. and the adaption that you, you know, um, understandably made for yourself was like to kind of build a a wall yeah. around yourself emotionally. Yeah. And um and and I guess like the 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 biggest thing I wanted to ask you just right out of the bat was like, uh, like you are someone who has worked in politics, you were a speechwriter for Obama for his campaign, went to the White House. The first thing I felt reading this book right away is like, this is not on message. <laughs> yeah, this is nothing, not on message. There's nothing on message. I mean, about you're, this yeah. you're, you're not only <laughs> revealing some really um, yeah. things that I'm sure were embarrassing for you to reveal about yourself, but, sure. you're, but, you're, but you're talking about people that you love yeah. um, in a way that is really honest and, and critical. And I'm yeah. just wondering like, how the hell did you make that leap being someone who spent yeah. so long in politics where you're conditioned to do the opposite to do yeah. what you did here? Well, and I, and you're right. I was conditioned. I mean, I, I, uh, I'd worked obviously on the, as we, as you mentioned on the Obama campaign, I worked on the Kerry campaign. I'd worked at intern in the white house for, uh, when I was in college for Bill Clinton, I'd wanted to work in politics. And so it's hard. I mean, I think that the, the, the truth is, and the bottom line is I needed to write the book. Uh, it was very clear to me early on as I was grappling with this, early on in the writing process, not early on in grappling with this, because in 2006, um, uh, yeah, I learned that my dad is not my biological father. Uh, and, um, and this was a secret that my mother had kept from me, from my dad, from our whole family, 
Um, and I, I continue to keep the secret from my dad for, for almost a decade. Um, uh, and I, I, I buried it deep down and it was only much, much later that I entertained, that I started thinking about the idea of writing about this. I mean, I couldn't have for, for, you know, uh, more than a decade, really. Um, uh, or I should say, you know, about for about a decade, I, the idea of writing a book about this would have been unthinkable to me. Uh, but as, as I started to sort of find my way through this and started writing about it, I realized how essential it was to being able to make my way through it and understand what had happened, understand this revelation and all of the crazy circumstances that led to it and all the, in, the insane sort of family details I learned about my biological father, about how his relationship with my mother, the ugly way in which his relationship with my mother started, how, just making sense of all this, writing about it helped. And um, uh, was, it was critical for me to sort of see my way through it. And I kind of made a decision as I recognized that, uh, that the chips were just gonna fall where they were gonna fall. Um, and that I just needed to write it and that I would have family members who were upset, as I do, that I'm writing this book. Um, that I would be worried about my mother's reaction as I was, as I am, mm-hmm. uh, worried about my dad's reaction as I was, as I, I'm not as much anymore because they both read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I just needed to do this for myself, and and not just for my for myself for my family, uh, uh, because this had been such a disruptive thing in my life, life and my relationship with Steph, my wife, with our family. I've got two young kids and wanting to be present for them, and also wanting to try and you know, uh, provide, show people who are going through their own kind of experiences with it, with a revelation like this or any other form of trauma, that there's sort of a path through it. Um, and so I kind of decided I was just going to be as honest as I could. And, um, and that's, that was the, that was the most important thing. And that all the other stuff I'd kind of figure out, uh, after, afterwards. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, when I was reading the book, I was struck by just the layers of you. You come from a family that r- relied a lot on secrecy, yeah, to sort of maintain the yeah. status quo, yeah, and and a lot and a lot of family loyalty, yeah. Um, and so it's a pretty courageous thing to write a book like this that I think is in the spirit of healing, yeah, but is um, very much about openness and transparency, yeah. And well, could be considered know, disloyal. Oh, for sure. I yeah. mean, you know, it's the spinal tap line. There's a fine line between clever and stupid. It's like there's a fine <laughs> line between between brave and stupid on this and courageous and brave. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, I know certain family members do consider this an act of disloyalty. They've mm-hmm. said as much to me. Um, so they, you know, I was struck by that. I, yeah. I want to hear what you have to say, but it was striking to me that you seemed so alone in your family in sort of like you were so aware of the consequences of living with secrecy yeah and other people that did not seem they did not seem clear on how they might have suffered also no yeah no i mean it's amazing how how it, it, it they're trapped i you know i i sort of i i have love for my family members even even the ones who have not always been supportive of me um but there there isn't a way in which it sometimes seems like not all of them um you know fully see or want to see the ways in which what their parents experienced the way it affected them um they they to to your question about being on message sam i mean it's as if uh saying anything negative uh is disloyal. I had a cousin, one of my cousins called me, I think probing about what I was going to say in the book. And she said, and I said, I was writing about Bubby and Zeta and their experience in the war and the legacy of the trauma. And she's like, well, I mean, you know, you're not going to talk about anything negative, are you? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, it was, they didn't do anything negative. And it's sort of like, well, what a weird, that didn't have any negative impact or something, something like that. She said, I thought, what a weird thing to say. It's like, it's the Holocaust. Okay. And it's, it's life. Gonna, and it's life. <laughs> it's gonna have like negative effects. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I was I was sort of like struck by the way um the the way she put it. And so there there is this kind of like, you know, head in the sand yeah. approach yeah. to some of this stuff that that 
um, is that, and I see it in my generation, in my family, the way in which that kind of approach just creates more problems. It's like, you know, I, I, I think I reflect on this in the book, but it's sort of like, if we just had a much more open and transparent and honest way of being as a family, we would have spared so much heartache. Forget me, you know, my mom wrestling with mental health issues and and all this secrecy that they put around that stuff. I mean, my mom would have been better off. The whole yeah. family would have been better off. If you don't mind yeah. talking about it, I am curious. Like, um, I'm sure everyone's going to ask you this as as you do your book events. What what your parents thought of it and what 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 yeah. those conversations were like? Yeah, you know. Well, when I was talking recently with a friend who's a therapist, um, uh, and she was saying that that the book helped. She she uh, works with a lot of people who have parents who have depressed and borderline personality disorder and uh and was saying that she, her hope was and her thought was the book might be helpful for them because not a lot you know a lot of people don't write about this uh from the perspective of the child for the reason that you're stating they're terrified of what the mother or or what father or whatever how they'll react and so there's not a lot uh research this is what she was saying and and i was i mean from the beginning of uh, the moment I decided to write about all of this, I was I was absolutely terrified. Um, you know, her reaction, my mother's reaction has been um, has 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 run the gamut. So uh, I gave her the book, and I didn't hear anything for several days. Uh, and so this after, must have been a long several days. It was a long yeah. several days, and so I after, at a certain point I called her up. Uh, and you know, she picked up and she just said, hi, how are you? She started talking as if I hadn't given her the book. Right. Um, and she's just asking about the kids and all this kind of stuff. I was like, well, so, you know, have you, you know, have you re read any of the book? She's like, oh yeah, I finished it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. Um, is there, you know, you want to talk about it? No, not unless you do. Oh, okay. And, and that was that reaction. Okay. I was like, well, there, another shoe's going to drop here. Um, and so it, it has run the gamut. So there was that reaction. She she said to me that I'm very proud of you for writing it, which I thought was very gracious and I appreciated. Um, we had an hour and a half long uh, uh, subsequent conversation that was, uh, you know, where where uh, she expressed uh, uh, her displeasure at a number of the things that I said uh, and wrote about, and we went through them sort of item by item. Uh, so it has kind of evolved. It has totally run the gamut. Uh, you it's know, like the beginning. It's the beginning of a long conversation. And look, I understand it. I mean, it, it, it's incredibly personal. I'm sharing a lot of very uncomfortable stuff about her, wholly apart from the sort of mental health uh, issues that she's grappled with her whole life, and and you know, I think um, still does. Uh, it would be uncomfortable for anybody to have their son. A family member shares such intimate personal details, and and so I empathize and, and from with that perspective. Uh, you know, my dad has my dad was very nervous about it. I mean, in the beginning, he he never asked me not to write it, but he asked me to just make sure to think about it. What uh, was he nervous about? You know, I he was nervous. He was nervous. It would. I mean, it's just so personal, yeah. you know, that his son isn't his biological son. This was a secret. He was cuckolded by this guy. It made him, I think, feel, you know, less than somehow of a man, of a some, husband. I don't know. I mean, um, at one point, I don't actually put this in the book, but at one point, my when my dad uh, told my mother's father, my Zeta, a long time ago when they, my parents were splitting, around the time my parents were splitting, um, that, you know, your, that my mom, your, your daughter, uh, uh, Garrison is my grandfather's name. Your daughter has been having, you know, an affair. And my grandfather, uh, said to my dad, well, I don't know about that, but if she is, it's your fault, mm. you know? And I think that, I think my dad is just sort of this heaviness has just kind of, uh, just lived with him for a long time. And, but he said to me after reading it, he said, um, you salvaged me. Mm. He said- That makes me want to cry. Oh God, I mean, tell me about it. I, uh, he said, you were, he's a great book lover. So he, he quoted, you know, referencing um, Dante. He said, you were my Virgil, leading me through the darkest parts of my life. Wow. And seeing me through to the other side. I mean, it was really, 
so so powerful uh you know um and very emotional to hear him say that and i i said to him as i was writing it trying to reassure him you know dad you're the hero here you you're I the was hero about of my to book say, you're yeah. the hero of my life you, yeah like you know um but it's so personal i think he now having read it and beginning to see people's reactions from our within the family and outside and just how supportive and loving i mean i get emotional talking about this but yeah. how supportive and loving people are um it, his perspective on it has fully come around but it was tough for him for a long time wow yeah i i felt like he was uh the hero one of the heroes yeah. of the book and yeah. and the moment where you know you you finally tell him and his yeah. response to you yeah. and then like sort of learning about how he's shouldered this burden for so long yeah 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 no i mean it's uh it was a lot, you know. I mean, it's still uh, I get choked up. I mean, it's still very raw for me. I'm, I'm you know, there with you. Because this is yeah. it's it's so intense and uh, and profound and 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 not that long ago. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I I kept my true identity a secret from my dad for almost a decade and only told him in 2014. You know, that's not that long ago. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, and only, I had fa- family members who didn't know about this until months ago. His siblings, my aunt and uncle, didn't know uh, that I wasn't uh, his biological son until a few months ago. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of this is still very raw and new. And, you know, my biological father, I have a whole half family there. Right. Most of them don't even know about me. Yeah. So we change his name in the book, but it's not, they're going to know. And so there's that whole, there are all those repercussions, which will no doubt follow. I was kind of wondering, just based on something you just said, like about living with this for so long. Yeah. And, you know, when I work with a lot of men, like I've heard this so many times that it's like, it just must be a thing for, for guys. Like a lot of straight men, are envious of gay men and the experience of coming out mm. because a lot of them feel like people don't really know me or like mm. uh, there's like a truth about me, my whole self, I'm just keeping it to myself. And I was just thinking like, mm. you've had this experience of getting to be more of yourself. Mm. And I wondered if it felt like that at all. I, I, I Yeah, and, it does for the first time. I mean, I feel, uh, I feel more grounded and sure of who I am now than I have ever in my whole life. But this whole experience, I mean, I have um, a stepbrother. My dad um, remarried a number of years ago to an amazing uh, woman, and she has a son uh, from a previous marriage. And I was never that close to him growing up. You know, we were separated by too many years, never grew up in the same place. Um, uh, But he came out to uh, my dad and his mom shortly after my conversation with my dad. And I remember when I called him up uh, when I was working on this book just to share this with him, my experience with him, we almost bonded over that experience. And it was in a way that was caught me by surprise because we both had this truth about our identity that we had not shared with the world right. uh, and with our loved ones. And uh, we didn't know how they would react. I think we had a different perspective and in levels of fear or whatever. We did. We came at it obviously very differently, but in a fundamental way, we had this truth about ourselves that, that we had kept to ourselves. And that process of holding on to it for for so much of our lives and then sharing it, and then being sort of liberated on the other side of it, was an amazing moment of connection between us. I, I mean, the most profound uh, connection and closest I think I've ever felt to him was in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I was, I was, I didn't, wasn't making that same analogy in my head that Avi was making about sort of coming out. But I was thinking throughout this conversation that, um, a decade to carry a secret that heavy, uh, uh must've weighed on you. Um, and I, there was just a small detail that, um, was funny on some level, but also just very telling. Just um, when you talk about um, being in the speechwriter's room with John Lovett, yeah. who's now the famous yeah. co-host of Pod Save America, and him being like, "Can you stop sighing all the time?" <laughs> Classic, um, yeah. But I'm just imagining that yeah. that must have taken a, a physical toll on your body too. And um, and and uh, like, do you feel? Do you actually feel like a sense of almost 
being a lighter person oh, now? Yeah. I mean, in my and Steph has commented on that. I mean, as I've told, now we're at a point where, like I wrote a book, I'm talking to people about it. And so it's diminishing returns in a sense of lightness. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, but especially a lot of those early conversations, she could tell a physical change in me. Wow. Um, you know, after, she could certainly tell after, uh, after I had that conversation with my father, but then even subsequent conversations with family members I was very close to who I opened up to about this, she would comment to me about how you you're, you seem different, you seem lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, absolutely, and and, um, and it did take a physical toll. I mean, uh, uh, it, it just played out. There's I I describe a uh, you know as I was sort of reflecting on the whole journey and writing about it, um, uh, some of the turmoil it created in my life, personally, professionally, and and showing up to work one day and love it being like, well, you look like shit. I think I put that in the book. <laughs> um, uh, and I didn't, and we went out to lunch and, you know, and I, I talked to him. I didn't share any of this, but, uh, but it absolutely, it, it, it took a toll physically. Um, and then when you think about that and you think about my mom carrying the secret for decades, wow. you know, I mean, that's the, that's the part to me that's sort of like, I, I, um, you know, I have strong views on, on whether her, you know, whether she should have done that, uh, she should not have. But, right. but you know, I can at the same time sympathize with that and uh, and empathize with what a cost that might have taken to her to hold on to this mm-hmm. secret for for all those years. I held on to it for uh, about a decade. She held on to it for twenty five years. By the way, I mean, you know, to the extent there's stuff that uh, um, still kind of gets me a little. Uh, fired up it is she never she never would have told me you know mm-hmm. i mean that's still that's still the part that kind of grates on me yeah. it's kind of you a, know it's kind of a had bizarre I not thing her on it it's kind of bizarre to think about it this way but you you figured it out um yeah. and um and that that's i mean it's a very powerful moment in the book where you just confront her and ask her yeah head on because you you figured it out basically but um but it's kind of a almost a bizarre stroke of luck now that i think about it that you did figure it out because totally because your life will probably be a lot better than it would have been had you had had that totally. secret never totally and that's yeah. the thing yeah. you know i yeah. mean uh, the, these these forms i don't have to tell you guys i mean the, the and um uh you're a therapist so like the the very the, sympathetic you obvious, know like obvious, yeah obvious therapist. <laughs> <laughs> like like you know if you don't deal with these things they uh, rear their head in all kinds of different ways yeah. and that's the and that's part of what kind of I realized about even after learning the truth, I buried my own head in the sand and didn't really want to deal with it. And then I started to realize that it was, it was creating all kinds of disruption in my life, and that that was in some ways the source of it. And if I didn't face it head on, it would it would throw my whole life out of whack for the rest of my life. And I wasn't willing to let that happen. So that's what kind of was the impetus for me to start confronting it. Adam, there's one part of the book that um, is actually about your dad that. Um, I don't know. I was just struck by this part. I, w- I wonder yeah, if you could read sure. it. My conversations with Jason were clarifying. Over the years, I've heard various versions of the question. Doesn't everything that happened, the cheating, the secret baby, somehow reflect poorly on your dad? I know where the question comes from. Dad had been cuckolded, and in some eyes, that makes him seem weak, like less of a man. Dad certainly doesn't look like a tough guy. He's rather slim, mild-mannered, and earnestly curious about people and the world. And as a boy, there were times I wanted him to display some of the more conventional attributes of toughness and strength. During a trip to Cooperstown, we met up with a friend of mine who was there with his own father to visit the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we challenged each other to a friendly game of pool, one father-son pair against the other. I was certain Dad and I would win. Grandma and Pa had a pool table in their basement, and I'd grown up admiring my dad's game, a gentle game, subtle angles, soft pushes. My friend's father, by contrast, was a former college athlete and practically snapped the cue in half with every shot, the crack resounding across the pool hall. We got our asses kicked. Such conventional notions of strength and weakness, of manhood, seem entirely inapt, however, for understanding Jason's and my dad's respective roles in this whole saga. And it raises all the age-old questions about what constitutes strength and weakness, what it means to be a man. Jason had an inappropriate relationship with a vulnerable, less powerful woman. Does that reflect strength? Is that what a real man does? Dad was faithful to my mom, vowing to help her heal and repair her relationships with Bubby and Zeta. 
does that reflect weakness? Are we comfortable saying that's not what a man should do? So I guess um, I, I wanted you to read that. Um, I mean, in part, I think it kind of encapsulates exactly what this show is trying to interrogate, <laughs> yeah. like that question of, is that what a man should do? And we do actually take seriously the ideas of kind of like, um, quote unquote, traditional masculinity and physical strength and, you know, things kind like Kind of wanting that. to be the guy who wins the pool game. Yeah. yeah and, right. and, but, but the real, the real reason that I wanted you to read that, I was just struck, um, uh, by the pool table thing. And, um, you know, it just made me think about, um, my, my own <clears throat> feelings about my dad when I was a kid wishing that he would be, have been the kind of guy to snap the cue almost in half with every shot. And he wasn't that kind of guy, but, um, you know, but he did, he did all of these other, you know, he was, he was, he was the guy who did the finessing and the, the yeah. soft touches yeah. and things like that. And, um, and funny. my dad was closer to that. Kind I know, of I know that, that's why we have opposite <laughs> issues. Um, <laughs> that's why I want to be the tough guy and you want to be the softy. But, um, but, uh, I think, um, I don't know. I was just, I, I definitely, uh, think that your dad comes off as, as the hero in this book and, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, look, we've that term cuckold, right? Like yeah. it's, it's such a, um, I mean, it must be hard for you to even hear that word it's out hard, loud. I, it's uh, hard for me to uh, hear it out it loud. Like, yeah. And that's something that the alt-right has really, like the, the word cuck has, has become their main epithet for an emasculated man. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, and it's such, such utter bullshit. The, and the, the term <laughs> itself is, it's so, uh, look at, you know, in this context, it's just, uh, it's so messed up. I mean, it's like, think about the context in which we're, what we're talking about here. I mean, in my case, I'll just take my case. We're talking about a woman, my mother, who was hospitalized for a suicide attempt, okay, for weeks. She practically killed herself and very close uh, to killing herself. And um, uh, a couple years later, a professor, more than a decade older, uh, preys on her, in my view. And in my mother's, I mean, and and in his own, by his own admission, I mean, he said to me that he was attracted to my mother because he was attracted to broken women. Right. Um, my my dad is trying to help my mom when they met. You know, is empathizes, sympathizes, trying to be there for her, trying to help her restore her relationships. And then we 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 kind of use a term like that to diminish the manhood of my dad. I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's like, it's so, it's so, uh, it's such an insane reductionist, outrageous way of lens through which to look at the complexity of the relationships and facts that we're talking about that, um, you know, uh, it, it, it says far, far more about the person using that word than it does about the actual situation. (laughs) Right. Um, is kind of my perspective on that. Yeah, I think that's what's so powerful about that story. It's like, as sweet as it might be to like win a pool game, it's like, right. <laughs> what does that? Yeah. It's so insufficient to being a person. Yeah, you know, yeah. it takes a tremendous courage and sense of um, stability in your own manhood and masculinity to be able to just you know quickly embrace. That's right. You as a son. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. so much mm-hmm. more courageous that's than right. than you know hiking I, that, no, uh, Everest totally. or whatever. And that's you know, as I kind of got to know Jason, I mean, my biological father, who was a presence in my life growing up, and I'd known him all my life, but I never didn't know him, at, you know, as my father until uh, you know, not not that long ago, frankly. And and as I got to know him as my biological father, and as I kind of got I got to understand his relationship with my mother and his views on things. He he, in some ways, embodies this that one strain of masculinity. I mean, this sort of uh, the the ugly strain, the to- toxic, whatever you, whatever one wants to call it. Um, this sort of toughness. I mean, sort of to an extreme. I mean, I, I would raise the you know the a lot. Some of our conversations, some of my conversations with him, were unfolding as the Me Too movement was gaining traction and and um, all the Harvey Weinstein stuff. And I I raised some of the stuff with him. He was. So very sympathetic to Harvey Weinstein. He um, hmm. uh, uh, and um, 
you know, that, that kind of epitomized that perspective for me. And to end thinking about really my dad, it, it totally upended it. Uh, my understandings of, of courage and, and what it means to be a man, because here's my dad, this sort of mild mannered guy who'd been carrying this thing, carrying it silently, but he'd made his own peace with it many, like many, many years ago. And he had the strength and the courage to make peace with it and to love and accept me as his son, whatever else. And so um, that, it, it sort of, it floored me. It still does um, yeah. as just sort of, that's what courage is all about. That's what, that's what manhood I think is all about. That's what, well, and that's what being a, 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 a good, decent, loving human being is all about. Yeah. You know? I re- just, we should get to the advice question in a sec, but listening to you and thinking about what, what really struck me about your dad is, right, in some ways it's not so hard to be stoic, like to carry something and just suppress everything, but you're right, like that he could take it and be a loving father mm-hmm. too is something else entirely, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and and that's, that is a, that just takes a great deal more strength. I think. Yeah. All right, so we're going to get into the advice question now. I'm just going to go ahead and read it, and then we'll get into it. Hey, man, my wife and I have two kids, a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl. My parents are pretty laissez-faire and hands-off as grandparents, but my wife's parents are more intrusive. They often have opinions about our parenting, our children's behavior, and they're quite vocal about it. They always compare what we're doing to how they raise their own children, often with the implication being that they did it better. Sometimes they seem hurt, if we reject their opinion or advice in favor of going our own way. Other times they'll just vocally second guess us. Are you really sure you want to do that? We mostly just grit our teeth and bear it. My wife is more used to this from them and I don't really want conflict with my in-laws. If I ignore them, it usually doesn't escalate, but I'm seething on the inside. How should I be handling this? Signed, Ditmas Park Dad. I think I think a lot of people can relate to this yeah. one. <laughs> this feels like one of these almost like unsolvable problems to me yeah i think because it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because what do you do what do you do like if you can't you can't ignore them because it's it, it they, they view it as pat- being patronized or or right. rejected you you can't take their advice if you disagree with it so what do you do you just kind of have to live well there, but there are some i think foundational principles that one can reflect on and try to adhere to i agree with you i don't think there's like a you know, one size fits all, silver bullet, whatever, to this kind of issue. Um, but from based on my own experience, at least, a few things are important. One is your kids come first, mm-hmm. number one, and their well-being comes first, period. Um, and so whatever needs to be done to preserve, protect, enhance their well-being, um, that needs to be the priority, even if other people are not that thrilled about that. Um, and boundaries are important. Uh, and it, not surprisingly, the people who, for whom the boundaries are being erected don't like boundaries. <laughs> That's kind of the deal. Yeah. Um, and there's pushback. And so it's not like you can establish boundaries and everyone's going to be, you know, really excited about it. Um, but boundaries are important. And so I guess what I would say is, uh, as long as you and your wife are on the same page about right. those boundaries. That's, that's an important piece. That's yeah. a really important piece. And and um, finding that place where you are on the same page about the boundaries um, and what those should look like is critical. And understanding that, you know, that's going to have some ripple effects and, and that you may have to wade through. But I think that, you know, cr- being on the same page about that and creating those boundaries around your, your family are, is really important. It's funny, you know, when we had this question, I was like, oh, this will be a great one. I'm sure we can all relate to it. And now I feel like we don't, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> I don't think you want to say anything. So well, usually, I'm like, I wrote a book, so yeah, I can, you yeah. know. Usually we, yeah, usually we're full one. of, well, maybe we can lean on Adam because well, he's already, he's already, you know, there, in hot water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, what, but I, I yeah, think, I, so what I'm most curious about, again, asking for a friend. Yeah. What I'm most curious about is like, how do you deal with it knowing that like okay there's there's a a difficult person who's not going anywhere because she's she or he is an important part of our family life they're not going anywhere but like you know they're 
I'm imagining these people are around the same age as my parents, probably in their late sixties. Mm-hmm. Like the, the the window of like they're going through major life changes and their personality dramatically changes is pretty small. Unlikely, yeah. They're probably gonna they're probably gonna be this way for the rest of their lives on some level. And uh and I'm I'm just trying to like figure out like like what advice do you give to people who are struggling with this kind of thing? Uh just how to deal with it personally. Like how do you not get re-triggered every t- like you can mentally prepare yourself. All right. There's going to be another time where, you know, my my mother-in-law or father-in-law nags me about how I should be sending my kid to synagogue more or going to church more or whatever, even though we've talked about this 50,000 times, they're going to nag me about it again. How do you not get just lose your shit when it happens for the 10 millionth time? You know, honestly, well, first of all, I think it's very different for the person who's the child of the parents who are the kind of folks you're thinking about here versus the the one who's married to them. Because I mean, I, Steph and I look at the, have a different reaction. I am as, as difficult as things can be. I'm sometimes, as I write in the book, you know, I'm, uh, I, I'm more understand, I'm more understanding, uh, and more, almost more sympathetic and, uh, you know, and, and I've tried to say to Steph, totally. you know, she doesn't, she's not trying to act this way. You know, I'm trying to sort of, but she but sees it more clearly. She like with, see, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. And, um, and it's very hard. I mean, this is part of the reason why the boundary setting is so important because there's, you know, it's, it's impossible to not constantly be re-triggered. And so in my, in our case, um, uh, you know, I would space, we would space out my mom's visits and that's honestly, I love my mom, um, and uh, it's very important to me and to Steph uh, that she have a, a real meaningful relationship with our kids, her grandkids. Um, but uh, the as you know, as I say in the book, I mean, like I, I, I uh, the frequent interactions with my with my mom, uh, and in particular when they sort of begin to involve the family, um, become very volatile and difficult, and so. We found that, and I found that spacing it out, um, which obviously there was pushback, obviously she wasn't happy about that, and obviously that created some other peripheral, some other additional issues, but that was the way to do it. It wasn't about, you know, because you're never going to not be re-triggered. It was more about, um, you know, creating fewer opportunities to be triggered. Um, And so, and this may be an extreme case, uh, but I do think that's a key part of it, because I don't know that the expectation that you will never be re-triggered is a is a realistic one yeah i think uh the classic thing with boundaries is sort of like right you you can set a boundary about yourself not about someone else right you can't ask uh your in-laws not to be assholes you can just control you know right uh how you engage with them and maybe that's just less frequent frequency right. because right. that's the only way you can control them not being assholes to you yeah right, you know? right. I, I i mean another thing that um again we're i'm Giving Broad all the story. advice responsibility to Adam here, so I don't have to um, wade in personally. But like, I, I think um, another thing that I think is is potentially helpful um, in just emotionally dealing with this stuff, um, without having to write an entire memoir as Adam did, um, but to participate in a similar kind of project of just trying to understand where your in-law is coming from Mm -hmm. trying to understand if they, if they do, especially if they do struggle with something that is um, bigger than just being a jerk, but is actually maybe something chemical going on or maybe some actual trauma, such as being the children of Holocaust survivors, somebody that like, I'm I'm struggling to articulate because I don't want to say, you know, that this person is not to be taken seriously. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, that's Um, the question is is sort of like, where is it coming from? Right. right? I mean, is it, is the premise and part of, I guess, what I'm, what, you know, whatever advice I was giving is based on an assumption that you can't actually go and just have a conversation with them. Right. And maybe you can. And if you can, that would be the best place to start. Yeah. yeah, And just have an honest, open conversation and say, look, when you guys talk about this stuff and interfere, like here's what here here's the issue with that uh, from our perspective, right. and try and engage it directly. I think that is the ideal um, scenario, right? If that's doable, but obviously there may be other stuff going on, and that could be complicated. And I understand that, you know. I think you know another way to think about. I think what you're trying to get at, Sam, is like I certainly felt this, and still feel it since my girls are still young. But like, you know, 
My wife and I are raising our kids Obvious differently. Three daughters. Yeah. yeah. And we're raising them differently from the way either of us were yeah. raised. And in that is a kind of implicit criticism, I think, of the way we were raised. And and I think that our parents can pick up on that at times, right? If if you don't want to repeat your childhood, then yeah. what was wrong with your childhood? Yeah. And and so I think sometimes if you can kind of hear the I think that the the worry in the that there's like a worry behind the criticism if they're like, why don't you want to do it this way? Right. It's like, do you think I was a bad parent? Right. Um, right. And right. so I'm just, I think if you can hold that in your heart, yeah. Uh, it might, it might sort of soften your, how you receive their criticism, yeah. you know? And also maybe there's an opportunity to show some appreciation for them in some way yeah. so that they don't feel like, uh, bad bad guys. Yeah, you know. I think that's very good advice. Um, oh, thank you. I'd go with that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, but I hear you. I think it's tough. I mean, with the, the issue we're talking about is very common. When you know, when I talk to friends, it's like they're facing similar issues. Yeah, you know, it's, it's very common. rare. Yeah. We've got. We, listen, we have a lot of. Um, we have a lot of parents across our. I mean, you know, with all the divorces, <laughs> yeah, yeah. all the biological or non biological. <laughs> there's the like kitchen. a lot of parents here, <laughs> but but you know that. The, the, that's a separate question from, you know, um, from the, from the one you're, you're asking, I think, which is like, you know, who are you most comfortable with and spending time with the kids and all of this stuff? Um, uh, Steph's mother's a therapist. Uh, and you know, one of the things, one of her kind of principles is you can either change the situation or you can change your reaction in response to the situation. And I think in, in these sorts of things, it, it is, Ideally, you can have that. I think you're, there's wise advice, Avi, about like understanding where they're coming from. Um, and, and if you're able to do that, if you're able to hold that in your heart and also share with them. I mean, one of the things that I think has lightened this whole experience for me was just my mother reading the book, honestly, uh, whatever her reaction, because, because I had so much to say to her for so long mm-hmm. that added tension to all of our interactions. And her just reading the book, I no longer had anything to say to her. She read it. And so from my, to me at least, it sort of lightened me up around her. And I think that's obviously, I'm not suggesting everyone go out and write a book about their parents or in-laws. But, um, but I think there, there is a way in which sometimes the, the inability to communicate all of that stuff directly just uh, aggravates the issues yeah. and feeds the tension. Something else that I was thinking about when I saw that we were going to do this question is I was like, Sort of in the way that I, I still don't entirely feel like a grown up. Like I have three kids, right? And one of them is seven. So I've been at this now for like a little while. Like I don't like I think of my parents as parents. I'm not sure that I always think of myself as on the same level. Yeah. And I think that I and, totally hear you. And and that there's something and like like God bless my youngest. Like in a way, I'd like to think I'd be the most prepared for her, but I'm also like the tiredest. So anything I've learned I can't really use because I'm like too exhausted and wiped out to do it. So it's like, and they're constantly changing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you're done. And yeah. so like, I sort of feel like how satisfying must it be to be a grandparent and everything you learned, you finally like can point totally. it out and see like, it's your only chance to do right. it right. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like, or do what you wish right. you could do. So like, I can totally relate to the impulse of like wanting to get it right and give yeah. someone advice. That's a great you know? point. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I, as you were saying that, and as I was rethinking the question, I'm realizing like, I want to keep this in mind for when I become, you know, hopefully someday a grandparent, of course, we're going to want to, we're going to want to weigh in on stuff. Like we're going to have to probably hold our tongues all the time. And by the way, both my parents and my in-laws to their great credit, I'm sure hold their tongues all the time. Um, because definitely we're not raising our kids to, you know, uh, in, in a way that is like the dream way that either of our sets of parents would hope we would have raised our kids, I think. Yeah. And, um, um, but, but, and, and as I was thinking about that, I was also just thinking about like, maybe like another jujitsu move, um, uh, could be like having the, the loving attitude, um, uh, and seeing the, the parent or the in-law as, as a whole person who's a bundle of faults and strengths. Um, and, you know, and, and, and simply like, and again, this is hard to do. Uh, you'd have, you have to be like a borderline mother Teresa to be this good. But like, (laughs) I think like, even when they're giving you advice that you hate, like saying something to the effect of like, I appreciate, 
how much you love your grandchildren and want them to be raised well. And, yeah, that and, is. And, and I see that. I see that you love them and, and care about them. And, and that yeah. moves me that you yeah. love them, you know? Yeah. And I think because, because you're absolutely right. Listen, it, it must be super hard, especially like, you know, again, without going into any details, like, I mean, um, especially for parents, let's say who are religious and their grandchildren aren't being raised religiously. Like that kind of thing must be such a stab in the heart for some people mm-hmm. of like, wow, you must hate me. If, if like the, the, one of the main ways that I raised you, you, you have rejected and are not raising your kids that way. And so that's why I think it's like important to like reiterate, no, we don't hate you. We love you. We're yeah. just doing something different. Yeah. Um, do you have, uh, a piece of advice that you, you've, um, you're a big reader, I know, and um, you've read a lot of great works probably that have great advice. So you probably have a bunch in your head, but is there any particular line from something you've read or something somebody important in your life has told you that has stuck with you? And yeah, I was thinking, of, you know, I was thinking about this. I think that, I think that the, uh, the best advice is the simplest that I, that I could offer, which is the epigraph of the third part of my book, which is the inscription above the entryway at the Oracle at, uh, at Delphi, the temple of Apollo, which was know thyself. Um, and I, I think, cause I think it's, it's sort of interesting that that was the inscription at an Oracle yeah. where people went to know their futures, right? If you, you go to an Oracle that, uh, to sort of understand what's in store for you and what lies ahead. And that that was the inscription is, is sort of worth reflecting on because what it says to me is that the only way we can begin to understand our future and what's in store is if we really understand ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as at least in my experience, uh, the process of that kind of self-understanding and discovery is not easy. It's painful. It's, it's, it can be terrible for long periods of time. Um, but the the reward is um, immeasurable. Um, so tell people once more um, the name of your book, where they can find you on social media, all that good stuff. And the name of the book is "The Survivors: A Story of War, Inheritance, and Healing." And you can find me at, at AP Frankel, uh, F R A N K E L, on Twitter. Um, and you can buy the book on Amazon or your local independent bookstore or wherever. Awesome. Thanks Great. so much, Adam. Awesome. Thank you. Guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That's it for our show this week. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have a question that you want some advice on, please email us at heymanpod at gmail.com or better yet, give us a call 917-426-4326 and leave us a voicemail. All questions, if they make it on the show, are anonymous. No need to worry. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at heymanpod. And if you have a moment, give us a review, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And better yet, click subscribe. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Peace.